Welcome to Journey with Jesus, the weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Watch Out, 10 Warning Signs That Religion Has Become Evil. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 18th, 2012. When our daughter went away to college three years ago, I emailed a friend about churches that she might visit. His response caught me off guard. After a few suggestions, he gave me the following warning. He wrote, There's one church she should avoid. It is cultic, and its members work very hard to get unsuspecting college students to come. Then they love-bomb them, and they become members. And then they distance themselves from their family and other believers. It's hardcore, legalistic, and authoritarian. But people get sucked in because the people are very hospitable. I went there for a long time growing up. And even today, we get shunned by members for having left. Religious sincerity is no guarantee of spiritual authenticity. At the end of, at the end of his thousand-page history of the Crusades called God's War, <coughs> Christopher Tyreman warns of the dangers of sentimentality in naivete about religion. He writes, It's a fond myth of the religious that piety excludes greed, coercion, and conformity, and lack of reflection. That is, that it is freestanding. The language of transcendence should not distract or dupe. Tyreman's book is about the Crusades, when genocide enforced conversions, butchery and baptisms were construed as works of God. The church not only justified and sanctified the Crusades, it even canonized them as meritorious deeds that earned one remission of sins and eternal salvation. Tyreman's warning is as applicable today as it was to medieval Europe. In fact, even in Jesus' own day, and among his closest followers, religion could turn toxic. At least four times in the Gospel for this week, from Mark chapter 13, Jesus warns his followers, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, claiming I am he, and deceive many. You must be on your guard. These false prophets and false Christs would, said Jesus, if possible, deceive even his most intimate followers. Further examples of religion gone bad haunt the Gospels. Jesus' disciples argued about who among them was the greatest. They asked Jesus for seats of glory in paradise. 
They wanted to exterminate a Samaritan village that had shunned them. They tried to prevent children from coming to Jesus, objected to anonymous healer who was not part of their inner circle. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, they defended him with the violence of the sword. In the name of God's love, Christians have slaughtered Muslims, Jews, Native Americans, and certainly each other. We've humiliated and exploited slaves, women, and gays. Here in America, we've aligned the gospel with nationalistic and political ideologies of both the conservative right and the liberal left, <clears throat> all in the name of Jesus. Some critics vilify Christendom as the worst of all religious offenders, but I'd make two observations. First, religious violence plays no favorites, either with perpetrators or victims. Child sacrifice, widow burning, caste systems, female genital mutilation, witch hunts, ritual abuse, ethnic cleansing, suicide bombers, apartheid, mass suicides. The list is depressingly long and includes virtually every religion. And second, political atheism has had catastrophic consequences. The extermination of a hundred million people in the last century have come in the name of liberations by Soviet and Maoist atheism. <clears throat> Why do people do evil in the name of religion? Why do we talk about love but torture and annihilate? After studying the Crusades all his life, Tyreman concludes that it's an irreconcilable paradox why medieval crusaders who followed the Prince of Peace endured unimaginable personal risks and privations in order to slaughter fellow human beings with such sincerity. Or to take another view, in his book, The Most Dangerous Animal, David Livingston Smith argues that violence is more a function of biology than religion. He says that war is deeply embedded in human nature, that it's innate in our natural impulse. As such, War is not a pathology or an aberrant choice, but what he calls a normal feature of human life. None of these explanations mean that we should ignore, excuse, or rationalize religious violence. Far from it. We should not remain silent when we see religious fraud. <coughs> We should name it for what it is. We can all learn and reflect upon some of the signs that religion has become evil and that evil has become religious. Here are ten warning bells. Number one, fanatical claims of absolute truth. I don't mean the belief in absolute truths, which I think is both tenable and admirable, but rather the doubt-free and uncritical confidence that one has understood absolute truth absolutely. 
Number two, identifying the gospel with nationalistic ideologies, partisan politics, state power, and ethnic identity. Number three, blind obedience to totalitarian, charismatic, and authoritarian leaders, personality cults, <clears throat> or views that undermine moral integrity, personal freedom, individual responsibility, and intellectual inquiry. Number four, ushering in the end times in the name of your religion. Number five, justifying religious ends by dubious means. Number six, any and all forms of dehumanization, from openly declaring war on your enemy, demonizing those who differ from you, construing your neighbor as another, to claiming that God is on your side alone. Do you believe that God loves Iran as much as Israel? There shouldn't be the slightest hesitation or qualification in your answer. Of course he does. Number seven, pressure tactics of coercion, deception, and false advertisement. <clears throat> Number eight, alienation, isolation, and withdrawal from family, friends, and society, whether psychologically or literally, as in the case of David Koresh's Branch Davidians or Jim Jones's People Temple in northern Guyana. Number nine, exploitation in all forms of unreasonable demands upon one's time, money, resources, family, friendships, sexuality, and so on. And number ten, oddball sectarian interpretations of scripture that have little or no support from the broad classical Christian tradition or that disregard the best of historical critical scholarship. Often these ten signs combine and overlap. About the same time that my daughter was heading off to college, I read two disturbing memoirs about damage done in the name of religion. In his book, An American Gospel, on family history and the kingdom of God, Eric Ries describes the fundamentalist faith that he inherited from his grandfather and father, both of whom were Baptist preachers. His father's suicide at the age of 33 had medical roots, he admits, but it was badly aggravated by the acute self-loathing, life-negating principles, oppressive faith, and repressive morality of his fundamentalist heritage. When Reese himself experienced a nervous breakdown at the same age of 33, he headed for a Buddhist monastery to purge himself of the demons of his family faith. Veronica Chatter's memoir, Waiting for the Apocalypse, a memoir of faith and family, centers around her father, Lyle Arnold, for whom the modernizations of Vatican II were not fresh winds of change, but what he called the smoke of Satan. 
He spent his entire adult life in a self-styled counter-revolution movement to return the Catholic Church to its original purity. His honorable intentions, dictatorial faith, religious earnestness, and sheer stupidity all backfired. Only one of his 11 children remains a practicing Catholic. Otherwise, the entire family paid a steep price in bitterness, resentments, banishment, drugs, <clears throat> teenage sex, and school dropouts. In the very last pages of her book, the Arnold family of 15 people is living in a dilapidated three-bedroom, one-bathroom house. Hell had descended to earth in Arnold's kamikaze quest for heaven. Don't be deceived or duped, said Jesus. Watch out. Be on your guard against the many false faiths that masquerade as true religion. <coughs> For books this week, I review a title called Through the Eye of a Needle, Wealth the Fall of Rome, and the Making of Christianity in the West, 350 to 550 A.D. The author is Peter Brown. Princeton, Princeton University Press, 2012, 759 pages. In perhaps the hardest of all his hard sayings, Jesus told the rich young ruler, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man refused this invitation and went away sad, Jesus concluded, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And thus the title of the book. Peter Brown, Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, and the leading historian of late antiquity, has written a masterful study of how Christians in the Roman Empire grappled with these words of Jesus. His book is characterized by lively prose, mastery of the primary sources and original languages, comprehensive use of changes in the study of antiquities, and especially the material culture of archaeology, gorgeous plates, nearly 300 pages of bibliographic end material, and a number of important revisions to the standard historiography. <clears throat> Brown is especially interested in the exact consequences of the conversion of Constantine. First, he rejects the great myth of the primal poverty of the early Christians. Also, it's true that the church gained new privileges under Constantine, but other groups enjoyed similar and even better privileges. Nor did Constantine usher in a time of new wealth for the church. That did not happen, says Brown, for another generation, until the year 370 and later. 
Until then, he credits the down-market mediocres or in-betweeners with being the church's biggest supporters. These were the so-called middling people between the super-rich and the oppressed poor. Artisans, small farmers, small-town clerics, tradesmen, and minor officials. These people who knew their place were what he calls the solid keel of the Christian congregations through the 5th century. Their giving represented not merely random expressions of compassion for the poor, but also pious acts to transfer wealth on earth to treasure in heaven. Around the year 350, argues Brown, Christianity was still invisible within the walls of Rome. The late 4th century marked a turning point when significant money entered what until then had been a church of no significant wealth populated by the middling people and devoid of social status. What followed was an explosion of writing on the subject of wealth by luminaries like Ambrose, Augustine, and Jerome. Only with the final fall of the Roman Empire in the late 5th century did powerful bishops fill the void created by the collapse of the empirical aristocracy. There are no easy answers here to the hard saying of Jesus. Brown documents the many and various ways that the social imaginations of the believers of this time and place grappled with the challenge. From radical renunciation by the super-rich, the anti-wealth of the ascetics, care of the poor, the everyday generosity of ordinary believers, and finally, the clerical stewardship of massive wealth received as God's providential gift. <clears throat> the author is Peter Brown. The title, Through the Eye of a Needle. <clears throat> For for movies this week, I review the film called Baraka. It's actually 20 years old, from 1992. If you didn't get a chance to see Ron Fricke's newest film, Samsara, 2012, this predecessor from 20 years earlier is a fine substitute that's available on Netflix streaming. Both films are non-verbal documentaries that offer 90 minutes of stunning images. There's no narration or script. The only sounds are haunting music from a soundtrack and the sounds emanating from what's being filmed, a waterfall, a rainforest, a traditional African dance, and so on. The images cluster around several themes. Many come from nature, like volcanoes, animals, mountains, and the night sky. Others are explicit religious, like Buddhist monks, Orthodox Jews, Muslim women, and Catholic priests. And then there are various scenes of our human interaction with the world, like cave paintings, African village life, garbage pickers, industrial food production, strip mining, logging, the homeless, and so on. 
Both films, Samsara from 2012 and Baraka from 1992, use time-lapse photography to good effect. And in both films, Fricky has traveled to two dozen countries for filming. From 1992, Baraka. <clears throat> and for poetry this week, we've posted the marvelous covenant prayer of John Wesley. John Wesley lived from 1703 to 1791. The covenant prayer. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. The Covenant Prayer of John Wesley. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November the 18th, 2012. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.